One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As a mom, vegan of 20 years, and entrepreneur, I need a lot of energy. And I turn to Athletic Greens to help me out. Athletic Greens is part of the daily nutrition regimen for thousands of top performers, professional athletes, and health conscious go getters worldwide, including USA cycling and endurance athletes. So I knew I would trust them. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. And it's a comprehensive all-in-one greens powder engineered to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and support your body's nutritional needs across the four pillars of health, gut health, immune system, energy, and recovery. And these are all things that I'm super interested in. I put a scoop in my smoothie in the morning and it feels amazing to know that I'm set up to feel my best and sustain my energy all day long. Try for yourself at athleticgreens.com slash yoga. That's athleticgreens.com slash lit yoga and get lit up. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have my friend Jason Gaddis on. Jason's been on here before with his wife, Ellen. Jason is the founder of the Relationship School, and today we talk about his brand new book, his first book that he's ever written. It's called Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High-Stakes Relationships. So we talk about what that zero means and how to get there. We talk about the importance of resolving conflict or dealing with conflict in the best way possible with friends, family members, lovers, partners, even coworkers, and how unresolved conflict doesn't benefit anyone, especially ourselves and our core values. Jason and I talk about some personal examples on my end, and he just offers amazing and really doable advice. And now more than ever, we need to learn how to improve our relational abilities, learn how to deal with conflict so that everyone benefits. You will enjoy this so much, and I can't wait to share it with you. Welcome, Jason. I'm so glad to have you back on my podcast. What a privilege to have you here. Even though it's you're, we're missing your spouse, we're really going to focus on you and all the good stuff that you're doing. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here, Laura. So I know this last year has been challenging for all of us in many ways, and we've also grown with those challenges. As a relationship coach, before we launch into your amazing new, your brand new book, your first book ever, tell me a little bit about this last year. Did did this last year get the book writing going or had you already started that? I had already started it. I'd been trying to write a book, man, for like 10 years and I I, I just wasn't ready, right? And then when I got the deal and everything kind of lined up, it just came through and it was actually fairly straightforward. Starting it was the hardest part, but it was, I wrote it during the first summer of uh, COVID and um, just happened, you know? 
So tell me a little bit about writing a book. Like, did you have all the information ahead of time, like writings ahead of time, or did you literally have an outline and then just start writing with this outline in place? What was your method? Yeah, I I don't know that I had a method, but I'll try, <laughs> I'll try to answer that question. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Um, yeah. Method? What's that? Yeah. Um, no, I had an outline and it changed a lot over the course of the book writing process, but it was great to start with an outline. Everybody always says that. And what was interesting is I had been teaching this stuff for years. And so it was kind of straightforward. I just had to get it organized. I'd never organized it in such a cool way before. I'd always kind of taught this and taught that and it was a little disjointed. So it was really helpful and very clarifying to everything I've been teaching for years. It just kind of brought it into, just made me organize it all. And so it flowed better. It was good. And then I had editors help me because I can be a little disorganized. Mm -hmm. So that was great. As we all creative people can be. Yep. So you founded the Relationship School. And what I really have come to learn and appreciate so much about this is that it, when we think of relationships, we often think of relationships in terms of heteronormative or love relationship, romantic relationship. But your relationship school and its teachings really talk about how to improve relationships with anyone that it has uh, importance in your life. And it seems like your book is really geared toward that. So this book is geared toward anyone who wants to improve any significant relationship. Is that correct? Yeah. And I call them high stakes relationships because those tend to be the hardest, especially when it comes to conflict. It's with our family. If we get in a snag with, with someone super important to us, like our parents or our kids um, or siblings, it's really painful, especially if it stays stuck and entrenched where there's a family cutoff or, and then business partnerships, sim similar, and then romantic partners, of course. So those are kind of the, the short of it in terms of high stakes. I mean, it does help. Like if we can figure out and particularly the intimate partnership, because that's the hardest one, I think, then other relationships are much easier. Yes. It seems like in the intimate relationship with the wife, husband, partner, lifetime, lifelong partner, that's where the most conflict occurs because you have a treasured intimacy and a trust and some ingrained just confidence in the structure and foundation of it. And yet that can be the place where we are our worst selves in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said it. I mean, our, our dirty laundry comes out for sure in our true colors. And that's the beauty of partnership is that you can't hide, you know, it just brings out all of you. And I think that's very healing and reparative. Um, a lot of people see that as kind of a pain in the ass and yes, it's annoying sometimes, but man, what a, what an amazing vehicle for growth, uh, an intimate partnership, especially many, many years in. Mm -hmm. So I want to launch right in. So the name of your book is called Getting to Zero. And I'm fascinated with what that, what is getting to zero? I was talking about it with my husband. I said, I'm, I can't wait to hear. This zero has got to be, because it can't be zero conflict, because I, I do also want to talk about conflict and that it has a real importance. It's it's natural. It's normal. Yeah. And these relationships were like, oh, we never fight. That always, to me, is like a red flag, I think. Yeah, because, neener, neener. Right, yeah. right. It's like, oh, I don't think that's actually, <laughs> I don't think you're really going deep then. So what yeah. does getting to zero mean? It means the happy place, the good place, the connected place. It means I don't have an issue with you. You don't have an issue with me in this moment. We might tomorrow or in an hour, but right now we feel good and connected and we're just in our good spot. 
So how does one get there? Like, I know this book is going to guide us, but give us some tidbits. I should say anything above a zero, like a one or a two, all the way up to 10, I call that the trigger scale or activation scale. That's when we're, our scared animal inside of us is sort of, the nervous system is sensitive to tone of voice or facial expressions or comments of blame, et cetera, someone who's not taking responsibility or silence. All of that triggers our scared animal to get activated. And, you know, depending on the level of activation, if we're up at a seven, that can be very hard uh, to know how to get to zero. But that's the goal is you're going to get triggered. Other people are going to upset you. You're going to feel uncomfortable feelings. No problem. That's part of the journey. It's how do we bring that number back down to a place where our nervous system lets down and we feel safe again. And so how do we do that? You know, there's a lot of ways, but the two simple ways are top down or bottom up. So bottom up is using the body and the nervous system to nervous system where I might put my hand on your shoulder or move close to you. And that is a gesture to tell your scared animal that like I'm safe again and it's okay for you to like relax. Um, So that's like a bottom up intervention. And then a top down is like using my words and my tone of voice to reassure you and let you know that I care about you and I'm not here to be your enemy and and I want to work through this with you. So like those are just some ways to think about top down, bottom up. And then of course, there's a ton I could get into in terms of how we tactically actually do that. Well, let me give you an example. I'll give you a real life example and then you can you can tell me because so I know when my husband and I have conflict and we fight and it's not what I would say is fighting fair or fighting well or fighting productively. Yeah. We're not really getting to the center of it. It's like we ping pong around it. So for instance, my daughter is going to college and I'm trying to give her, she's 19, I'm trying to give her um, a lot of space and know that I'm here for her. And even though she's got another week with us, I'm not directing what's happening. I'm just kind of observing and if she needs me. And that's just how I've been as a parent as she's, and and like I'm her person, she'll come to. Okay. And my husband will be more involved, although he is being, he's given her a lot of space. So my brother was coming over the other night um, for dinner. We were coming back from New York and my daughter had said, hey, I really want to see my boyfriend on Saturday night. And I said, that's fine. Do you know when you're going to do it? No, I don't know. It's a little bit dependent on him. And I said, well, you know, uh, my brother, your uncle and Anne are coming over for dinner. They'd love to see you, but there's no pressure. Like if you are not, if you're here, great, come spend some time with us. If you're not, you're going off with your boyfriend. Yeah. And my husband's response was, no, this is family. She should make the plans around the family. And, you know, then she can see her boyfriend, which I so appreciate. And he has a lot of family, like, love that way. And a lot of that is is driven from the fact that he lost his brother. His brother died at 19 years old. My, my husband was 17. So he has a strong, like, family is everything, which I love. Like high he's, value. Yep. Uh, high value. I love that. But he wasn't kind of, in my mind, seeing the forest through the trees, which is, I appreciate that. I know Olivia, like my brother's laid back. He's not going to really care if Olivia just pops in, says hi and leaves. And what we're doing is we're already saying what your decisions right now are yours to make. And I'm not going to judge them. Like you want to spend the time with your boyfriend before you leave. That was my thing. And so when my husband started saying, you should have really supported me on this. And I know your family doesn't value it the same way as my family. And so he goes into this like, 
yeah. outer circle of like, and I'm like, you know, you don't have to bring in like our, like, that's just not going to be helpful. Like, cause I know what you're trying to do is like inflict a little like zing, like your family doesn't place as much value on my family or, 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 or family relationships as his family does. Yeah. Okay. So I just think like, I know where it's coming from. I know that's not a productive thing to do to make it about something even beyond what is happening at that moment. What would the best response for me at that? Because I just, what I do is I just shut my mouth and I, cause I think I know where this is coming from. I'm not going to argue with you about it. And I like, I look at it differently. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm trying to give Olivia this feeling of you come to us. I know you love us, but I also don't want to dictate your last time here. Anyway, so I'd love, so there's my personal thing. Okay, cool. That's a good example. Let's, let's play with that for a minute. I love the pictures of you and your daughter on Instagram, by the way. That was Thank really you. Cute. Yes. We have a really yeah. solid, sweet relationship. And so it does, it's easy to come from that place, I think, as well. Yeah. Well, my first question to you is, and, and if Mark were here, what would, uh, curious what his response to this would be, is did you empathize with him and validate his feelings about how he saw the whole thing? I probably didn't, no. I didn't because we were, it was a very kind of quick conversation in the like 10 minutes before decisions were being made. Okay. So no. Yeah. So, so this is a pretty classic value difference, you know, given he values family a certain way and you value family and your interactions with your daughter a certain way. So very normal difference in a spouse arrangement and then with the kid and being 18 and moving out. And so it all makes sense. And one thing you could do, even circle back tonight or soon, is you can just take responsibility for um, any energy you had around it or even even getting quiet and how that might have had him feel or how you took, maybe it, to him it felt like you took your daughter's side or, you know, in a triangulation kind of way. But I would be empathizing like, hey, I imagine that uh, didn't feel very good and that I can appreciate how much you love your family. You know, so you say some words about how much you see him and his value of family. And then let him know it makes sense that you would want our daughter to be there and you'd be really firm about that. And I love how much you care. You know, so you're just seeing him and saying your position actually is fine. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then you can and, (laughs) and then it's like, and you, you want to be heard around the stage you two are in in parenting your daughter. And can you guys just sit down and really try to understand where both of you are coming from? Because I imagine, you know, if uh, if I'm him, it just, I, I mostly, more than I want her to come to the dinner, it's I want you to know where my maybe seemingly controlling behavior comes from. And I, I really need you to know that. And it sounds like, Laura, you know that already, but maybe he doesn't feel like you know that. So then you want to just make sure you really get it. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. No, I think it's really good because in our relationship, he is much more of the vocal communicator, which has been like so healthy for our 20-year marriage. Whereas I am much more of the, I don't like conflict, therefore I avoid it, (laughs) which is not healthy, right? Because then, then it's still there. It just hasn't been communicated and it's also like you said, I'm not showing that I do have him. Like I do so much appreciate his fierce, like Papa Bear love of all of us, and that we he we are number one all the time for him. 
I, I appreciate it. And, you know, I probably even take it for granted sometimes because it's so present and it's so part of his fiber. If you guys stay with it, and it might come to pass again that he starts to soften around his position and once he understands you and where you're coming from, because sometimes people in their value position, they can be a little rigid because mm-hmm. it's coming from their values instead of like, this is just how it needs to be because this is, this is what I believe in versus, oh, my values and what I believe in actually impacts you. And huh, it actually is a team decision here. And how can we be more together on the choice for the family dinner? I, I agree. And that is um, in our relationship. And I've seen this in other relationships, but I can speak for my, ourselves. Like being on the same team has been work. It has not always happened oh, yeah. because and I'm sure you know this, like parenting to me has been the most challenging thing for our relationship. We didn't have a lot of, we never had conflict around money, around values, um, like, you know, hardcore values. And But it was, we did have differences in how we perceived things should be addressed or, and I, Very I'm common. right, right. It's really common because we're two humans that are coming together with our own back experiences of our own childhood yeah. And then trying to kind of either reformat or recreate the things that we liked. And so there's been a big, you know, center area where we intersect and, and really jive. And then there's been some things where it's like, you know, again, I, and I, I'm sure that's pretty common where one person yeah. has, you know, they're, they're, they're more rigid or they have, they're more strict and the other person's a little bit Yeah. Yeah, And I, and you know, my gut tells me that's probably a good thing for the kids most of the time to have a balance as long as it isn't a ping pong. Like I know I'm going to get something out of this parent if I come into that, you know, like, like not uniting the team. So that's something we have worked on, but boy, that has been, I mean, I'm looking at it now and I'm like, wow, we're, we're kind of through the worst part of marriage strife, which is uh-huh. teenage years, I think, where yeah. there's, um, you know, our daughter's 19, our son is 16, but he's just a, you know, he's, he's just an easier, he's an easier kid in some ways, you know, uh-huh. he's second child. So we also are easier in our parenting. I think that's natural. Yeah. So what is some advice yeah. for people who are, are in it right now? Like, I feel like we've kind of crested the hardest part, but who are yeah. in this conflict about how to parent. I think this yeah. is super challenging. It is. It's such an important question, though, because kids will perceive parents who are not in alignment, and they will, depending on the kid's age, they'll drive, try to drive a wedge, the wedge further apart, because the kid sees that the primary relationship sometimes can be threatening to the relationship over here with the kid. So they often do this unconsciously. They're not like consciously trying to act out here, but it is pretty normal. And it's essential that parents are a united front on the big things and that they work and fight and argue until they can come and be that united front on the big stuff. And it's and it's okay to have differences in the family. Dad does it this way. Mom does it this way. That's fine. That's also, like you said, really healthy for kids to see that parents can disagree and do things differently and it's still okay. The issue is when it starts to turn into resentment and mom's throwing the dad under the bus with the teenager or vice versa. And there's a lot of triangulation going on. And it's like, Hey, don't tell your mother I said this, or don't tell your father I did that. And that's sort of a regular occurrence that starts to get a little low grade toxicity in the family system. And I, I don't recommend that it's not good for the family, but it is good for kids to see their parents argue 
and have differences and even not totally be aligned on some things. Um, that's fine. Again, as long as it doesn't split the marriage apart or um, the two people are mature enough to agree to disagree in a respectful way and still respect the shit out of each other and still have each other's backs. So let's talk about some other forms of conflict, not just like in a marriage, but say, because I've seen a lot of this this, this year in personal interactions, but also in just talking with so many people. Uh, because fortunately, I do talk to a lot of people just like you do through our trainings and programs. I've talked to probably thousands of people just this year. And it might be the time. There's a lot of stress in the air. There's a lot of uncertainty. But it does seem like friendships, very close friendships, work relationships, even relationships within a family between like siblings, uh, there has been a lot more strife there, a lot more conflict, yeah. bad behavior that is, is can't be overlooked. Like it's like yeah. it, the threshold has, there's just no room for that behavior to exist. And it probably is people just are yeah. tapped out. Um, right. Can you start with like an example of how one, if, if you have like, again, this is considered a high threshold relationship. You have a long-term friendship or, or a business mm -hmm. relationship. You don't want it to end. And yet the behavior of the person is just kind can't be, you know, literally can't be tolerated anymore. Yeah. Well, let's frame it from um, a double bind I call two shitty choices. So in that, in those kind of in examples, it feels like we have two shitty choices. And so we stay stuck in overwhelm, indecision, or confusion. And the two shitty choices are very simple. It's choice A is speak up, speak my truth with this person and really let them know, hey, this doesn't, this behavior doesn't work for me, or hey, this is, I'm really upset about this, but risk losing the relationship forever and risk being judged, criticized, hated, et cetera, right? So choice A feels like a shitty choice, like, eh, I don't really like that. Choice B is, I call business as usual, where I don't say anything and I just stuff it and I keep avoiding the conflict, but then I resent them and I'm silently judging them in my head and I'm kind of withdrawing from them and I'm, I'm minimizing my own feelings and saying, eh, it's not that big of a deal or I don't really want to rock the boat. So you can see that in both choices, it feels really bad and most people stay stuck and choose choice B. The courageous person chooses choice A and says, you know what, I'm going to have courage and I call it choice C for courage through conflict. Conflict being choice C, like I'm going to speak up knowing that it might be uncomfortable, it might rock the boat, but I do not want to leave my integrity behind anymore. I'm not going to leave myself behind. I'm going to stop resenting this person. I'm going to like be an adult here and get it out on the table. And, and then I can say, and I want to repair with you, and I want to work through this with you. I can add on you know, disclaimers like that as I speak my truth so that the person doesn't feel overly threatened. But you know, we can't ultimately control another person's reaction, and they might shut down. They might cut you off. They might hate you forever. But would you rather lose your relationship to yourself or lose the relationship outside of you? Mm, I love that. I, I want everybody to hear that because I feel like people are fearful and aren't feeling courageous in making those uh, the strong choice A to, to, say, to say, like, this behavior is not you know, it's just like, whatever, it's toxic, it's awful, it's hurtful, and I j you need to be aware of it. And if you want to talk through it, great. But again, if the, if the person's reaction is to stonewall you and then ghost you, 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 you have to come out of it knowing like you did the right thing. Like, like what yeah, you said, you were, at you, least you got yourself, mm -hmm. you know? 
And you're right. This this time is is really intense right now because we all have this added layer of stress. Like we're already stressed, and then we have this added layer called COVID and what's going on and what's the unknowns around that. And it's so stressful. And so I think COVID's like pushing all of our relationship issues to the surface and asking us to make a choice. Like, do you want to have what kind of relationships do you want to have? Do you want to have deep, authentic relationships with a few people, or do you want to keep pretending like your buddies with everybody? but kind of betraying yourself and playing small in a lot of relationships. Like, yeah, and I, I think conflict is this amazing opportunity for us to go deeper with someone, to have a better relationship with them. And not everybody's going to be up for the ride, you know, and that's okay. Now, can you talk a little bit about how conflict improves our relationship with ourselves? How does it help us become even better human beings? Yeah, totally. I, I think we moving toward conflict allows us to, again, be truthful and honest and authentic. And it's a practice, right? So I take on authenticity as a practice in relationships versus a destination. Uh, because look, a lot of us don't want to reveal everything to everybody and that's okay. We don't need to make that inauthenticity wrong. There's a time and a place to just not tell the truth or withhold or, you know, not say the uncomfortable thing. That's fine. But in our high stakes relationships, the ones that matter most to us, yeah, it's this amazing practice to find our voice again, to with trembling legs share the uncomfortable thing and in doing so, I think I think we become a stronger person, a person that has more integrity, a person that's more trustworthy uh, in other relationships. I call it a re- becoming a relational leader. You become a leader in your relationships, in your family system, at work, where people start looking to you to be the person to, you know, help everybody deal with their shit and and that Sometimes it's a full-time job and I don't, you know, always recommend that maybe pattern if that's your habit. But being a relational leader also means setting really clear boundaries with people, saying no a lot, and actually having expectations that people own their part in in a conflict. Like, no, I'm not going to be the only one that does, like, owns my part over here. You also need to own your part. That's, you know, mutuality, I call that. So there's a lot of things we can do to, I guess, become more mature and become more of a leader in this department. Is that one of the things you talk about in your book? I'm sure you talk about this in therapy too, about how important it is to, that there are two sides, there are two people, and it isn't just one person who's at fault. How it's important for even the most stubborn of all of us to recognize, like, like, how do you start to unpack that? Like, what did I do that, that led to this heightened conflict or this heated state or this state that is not making anyone happy and maybe even destabilizing the relationship? How does one even start? Like if they're so not used to doing that, like where do yeah. you start? Yeah, that's a really good question because the truth is we're, we all know someone that isn't like that and that won't ever do that, right? Or unlikely. And so taking responsibility is, is literally like, I think it's a human developmental step like children need to learn how to take responsibility for their behavior that impacts other people in a negative way. And kids that don't learn that turn into adults that don't know how to do that. And they're blaming everybody or they're blaming themselves, which isn't taking responsibility either. Um, So one of the first things we can do is look in the mirror and look inside of our own experience and say, what am I feeling right now? And a lot of people would answer that question if they're externally oriented, they'd say, well, I feel like you are, which isn't a feeling, right? So just a basic I feel statement. I feel angry. I feel hurt. I feel alone. I feel scared is a great place to start. 
And then it's, yeah, just you ask the perfect question, which is, my part is, just finish that sentence. My part is, I raised my voice. I didn't text them back. I dropped the ball here. I name called. I um, was stuck in blame for two days or two weeks or two years. You know, anything like that, when we can finish a sentence, my part is, and then here's the cool third step, is we can ask ourselves uh, to imagine given that I, my part is, my part is I raise my voice, what is the impact on them that I did that? So that can flex our empathy muscle to go, hmm, to consider what it must be like for the other person if I were them, given that, that I did that thing that I did that was kind of mean or hurtful or neglectful. And those, just those couple moves, I think, can go a really long way. Mm, I love that. And wh what it's doing, too, is really reframing for lack of a better word, vulnerability, or, you know, it's this, I think people are so not in touch with their feelings and are ready to be on guard and defensive, which in a way is not tuning into their own part because doing that, saying, I'm sorry, you know, how many people do you know, raise your hand, they'd have a hard time saying that. And uh, yeah, I think it's taught in childhood. I think it, but it's also culturally there is like some kind of weakness in, in admitting that you were a participant in things not going well. And it's like, actually, it's liberating and it's probably ultimately really empowering. What have you noticed with people who have gone from that, like angry, blaming everybody to recognizing like, wow, I, I actually have a big part of this and I need to do my own work. What is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about me in my <laughs> former life here, that that was 10 years of blaming every woman I dated until I took responsibility. I, I couldn't do anything about it, right? As long as the out, the problem is outside of myself, I don't have to change. And that's a very disempowering stance. So people need to realize that, that like when you're stuck in blame, you don't have to do anything. And so, of course, you don't think you have a part because you're blaming them. But it's, I think, way more interesting as a practice uh, especially if you're into growth, to consider you do have a part and it might have just been turning your head, looking away when they were trying to talk to you or you looking at your phone. Um, something small it might be like simple like that. But how much power there is when you take the, you know, get in the driver's seat of your experience and you say, yeah, I, I had a part too. Man, um, there's all kinds of things you can do, especially if you're into growth and development. And then that's very considerate of the other person and their feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's what being human is ultimately, hopefully, is is caring beyond ourselves. And that that is what will grow us too, will grow our heart, will grow our compassion and that inner fortitude. Because it, yeah, like you said, I'm sure in those 10 years of blaming all these women, like, oh, they did, you know, they did this or that. Yeah, you probably didn't grow much, <laughs> you know, right? Oh my God. I thought I was growing, I, I, but it was like in sudden, I was growing as like a rock climber. I was growing as a skier. I was growing as a beer drinker in those areas, but I was not growing in my psychology and my development. You know, I was actually stunted and I couldn't see that the problem was in fact me. And it took enough pain to go, oh, I'm the problem here. And then that was very liberating. That is. Now, what do you do for the person who is usually the one who's resolving conflict or coming forward, but they're in a family or I would say family because that seems like I've heard this one too. And it's just not getting anywhere. And they're just kind of crushed a little bit more and more. Um, how do you get to zero with somebody in, 
how does that person get to zero? Yeah. Uh, well, I have a chapter in the back of the book about people like this, where you, how do you get to zero basically with someone who won't even come to the table, right? And so there has to be some individual practice we can do without asking the other person to change. Uh, first, though, we have to try, and most people do try, but how they've tried is usually sus suspicious. Um, I always say you can make reasonable requests of your family members or partners or coworkers, as long as they're reasonable. Um, hey, do you mind picking up your socks? Hey, do you mind coming to coaching with me because I think it's gonna help our relationship? Do you mind taking responsibility for your part? These are all reasonable. But asking someone to be fundamentally be different than they are is very difficult, especially in families. So it gets really tricky here. And if you have, you're with a family, you're in a family, and you're wanting something to change, and there's a conflict, and they're not, the family member's not doing anything, you're kind of powerless when it comes to a dynamic with them. And to me, I start, I always encourage people to, instead of working on trying to work it out with the person, start working on your boundaries and start working on your clarity of what you will, what kind of conversations you are up for and you're available for and what kind of conversations you're not available for anymore. So though that can be extremely liberating when you're home for the holidays or on a vacation where it's like, you know what, I'm, I'm actually not available for political conversations anymore with this family given it just gets derailed and everybody gets mad and there's a lot of blame, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get up and leave the room, guys. And I love you guys, and this is just not my jam. You get to do that, even if people make you wrong. So boundaries are really good. And then just I could get into an exercise that, you know, you might consider. I don't know if that's useful, Laura, but very useful. there's things we can do kind of on our own too. Well, maybe what I would like is, um, I always, I know, I'm sure this is kind of an annoying question, but... <laughs> What are some tips? Like, I want to wake up. I want to be a better relational person. I want to be better in all the relationships with my partner, with my kids, with my parent, with my siblings, with my family. What are some things that you recommend that we can do as individuals to kind of fuel ourselves for this is work, but it's worthy work. It's necessary work, especially like you said, with these high stakes relationships, because they are high stakes. They're meaningful. They're super important, but what are some things we can do on a regular basis to kind of, you know, gear ourselves up to be the best we can be in those interactions? Yeah, I love that. Make a commitment to yourself and then make it out loud with a friend and write it down and, and be held accountable in that commitment and then change your values. So what that looks like is, so let's say for your listeners, because they're way into your yoga, it's like asking the question, how is becoming a relational leader uh, and more mature relationally, how is that going to help my yoga practice? Mm. How is that going to help my body actually feel better as I move through the day? Right? So we have to link the values in order to change them. Because like you said, it's work and it, be, it can feel like moving uphill sometimes unless we change our values, then it becomes inspiring. And then it, we don't need to be reminded of it. We don't need accountability because we just love doing it. Like you, yoga might be your highest value, right? So no one needs to remind you to go practice yoga, right? No one needs to remind me to work on my marriage. I don't need that reminder, right? So if you want to get to that place relationally, you're going to have to see how prioritizing relationships and relationship education and learning and devouring material and practicing and um, signing up for things and getting some coaching or some therapy, you're going to have to see how that is going to help your highest value, whatever that is. So it's um, maybe it's better being a better mother. 
Maybe it's being a better boss or a team manager. Um, man, if you apply yourselves relationally, it's amazing what could happen in your life if you start seeing the connections. I love that. That's that's a lot about you know the neuroscience that I love with habit formation is that you have to link it into something you're already doing, you know. So it's that it's the like do ten push-ups every time you go to the bathroom, or when you're brushing your teeth, you align this new habit so that it it does become more of its hard hardwired. So it is like you said, it doesn't have to be a second thought or or anything like that. And you would think that all of us would have uh, being a relational leader as as a priority. But I, I, I assume that's probably well, not happening yeah. <laughs> because we are, you know, we have conflict all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, you could say the same thing about the body, right? That like, I have had so many injuries, Laura, and it, it honestly, your yoga has completely changed the game for me because I, I was skeptical at first. I started doing it, right? And practicing it enough that I would see a result and then I actually saw a result, and that is motivation for me to keep going, right? But I can't tell you how many physical therapists told me to do the exercises and I didn't do them, right? Yep, that's very common, right? Here's a sheet. Do three sets of, you know, three sets of 10, 10 reps or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay. And i go home and I wouldn't do it. And it's like, okay, this isn't important enough to me yet, right? And so... But now, because I'm seeing my body change and how I'm bio, my biomechanics are changing thanks to your yoga, like I'm, I don't, I need less reminders, right? I can do your yoga five days a week now without it being a suffer fast or out being like, oh, complaining and God, this is hard. And I'm like, no, I, I'm psyched because I'm progressing. Yeah, I love that analogy. I love that analogy that um, we can, yeah, layer it into something and see how it, see the results of it. So if we just layer a little bit of, of paying more attention, or like you said, little, uh, like I'm thinking of an example, because I know a lot of couples probably have a conflict about technology, you know? One is on technology more, or maybe they're both on it a lot, who knows? But it becomes a distraction from their marriage or their relationship or their partnership. And I think that, you know, even like paying, you know, like making a goal of like, I'm going to purposefully shut off my technology at this time of night or for this amount of time and have a focused conversation. Um, I know my husband and I try and take walks together because A, it's getting out of the house. It's like we're walking, we're with our dog. And it's like a time where we can talk and we can just kind of free talk. I know it's lovely to sit and stare at each other and talk too, but it's like, there's something, there's an ease about talking out things there because you're, oh, yeah. you're not in a confined space and and you don't have technology. And I think that, you know, all of us in our relationships probably need to like, this is like the mistress or, or whatever in the room is that like to, to put down technology. And I, and I hold myself accountable for that as well. Um, we can always say there's work to do because I'm not, you know, fucking around doing like games or something on my, you know, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, the backlog of 200 emails that starts to give me like, you know, that's, so I could always use that as an excuse, but the truth is it's For still sure. going to be there. And what is more valuable is if I put it down and show my husband that he's more valuable than my worry about making sure that I get back to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that kind of gesture goes a long way when we set the phones down, even at dinner, we can do a phone stack and like, no one's allowed to look at their phone and whoever does pays for it, or there can be ways we gamify it. But can we actually just connect? And I love walks with my wife too. And we 
you know, have our phone corner. We don't even bring him in our room. It's like eight o'clock at night or seven 30 often for her. It's earlier um, than me. The phones go on the counter and like, we don't touch them until the next morning type of thing. You know, I think that's really, really important. I do. I need to get better about that. Cause I'm not, I usually use my phone for an alarm, but I should just like get an alarm. It's and a slippery slope. It is. A, well, I, I, yeah. I try, I, you know, <laughs> right? turn it off because actually I'm not somebody who actually loves being on the phone. Truthfully, you know, I do my Instagram and it's fun and I do like to interact a little bit, but I, I, you know, I don't interact that much on it. I could do a lot more, but yeah, I think it's, it's more the, uh, the symbol, you know, whether, mm-hmm. right. even though I have it off, but I have my alarm on my husband doesn't like it being in the room. And it would be really symbolic for me just to be like, okay, you just wake me up and I trust you're going to wake me up on time and I will put it out of the room. And that's like not a sacrifice. It's just going to make him happier. And there's other alarms you could probably buy, right? Absolutely. I like it super dark though. I'm like really one of those (laughs) weird people. Well, not weird. I sleep really well when it's really dark and and also kind of going to bed knowing that I will wake up when I need to, so I'm not worrying about when I wake up. But um, anyway, it's it's a veiled excuse. Uh, there's I'm not going to be fine, right? <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll sleep two nights and then I'll get used to it, right? Right. But um, but for many years, that's only been in the last year and a half. Uh, for many years, I didn't never we never had the phones in our room, and and so I think anyway, there's lots of examples we can all give. But I think this is a great piece of advice. It's like couple it with whatever your value is and think about like that's going to change your values where where you put your efforts yeah and one more rule about the phones that i always say to people ellen and i have an agreement that we never fight over text or email so a lot of people it's amazing to me how many people are like sitting there like and angrily getting like getting into a fight i'm like no don't do that Mm-mm. there's so much that can go badly there um, set the phones down. And actually the, the thing you need to text the person is, Hey, I care about this conversation. I'm no longer going to fight with you over text. I look forward to our zoom call tonight or being in person with you where we can finish this. I'm not available anymore to fight right now over text done. And then when they text back and say, yeah, but just hold your, hold the line. Respond. I love that. I think you're right. I, I can't imagine how many relationships have probably really just self-destructed from bad texting because even, even texts like that are seemingly are innocuous. You, there's so much that are that is un that you can read different ways that yeah. that are, it's just not translated. It's yeah. not communication in all of its forms. You know, it's That's so right. I, I love that. That's a great rule. So rule number two, to everybody, we got to make sure that we prioritize <laughs> our relationships and maybe put down our phones, and also definitely don't don't text or email. Yeah, because the other thing I always think about that, and I'm always just thinking about it purely from. Like, would I ever want to look back and see a chain of angry emails or te- like, right. you know, it's just like when I tell yeah. my kids, like, don't post anything you wouldn't want everyone to see. It's it's It does hold you like, I don't want to write stuff in this moment where I'm angry that I'm going to look back and be ashamed that I wrote that or, or yeah. you know, and, and because we all have those feelings and it's like, the last thing you want to do is put it down in a <laughs> non-encrypted <laughs> place so uh, it can yeah. live in perpetuity. And, yeah, and you know, show all your friends and it's just like, no, 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 skip it. No, it's good. Well, we could talk forever, Jason, but I just want to encourage everybody on here to go out and purchase this first book of yours because every time I speak to you, I read your writings, your emails, like get on your newsletter list. Your newsletter is 
unbelievable. It's like literally the only newsletter I read. It's so eloquently written, but it's also got this like, hey dude kind of vibe, which is just like this super balance between this like, you know, brilliant psychologist who's also like, I feel like I could go surfing with. It's it's wonderful. Right <laughs> um, cool. So what, tell us, tell everybody where they can find your book and how to support you because I, I want everybody yeah. to. If you guys find value in this conversation and there's, um, you know, you, you're probably guaranteed you probably have some unresolved issue with at least one person in your life. And if you want to change that, this book can help you with that person and with yourself in relationship to that person. It's called Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High Stakes Relationships. It's out October 5th. It'll be on, you know, Amazon, of course, and then Barnes and Noble. And you could go to your local indie bookstore. And if you want to support local folks, you can ask for that there. And that would be awesome too, because that way we can support the local bookshops and um, get my book in your town or city would be amazing. And it's uh, gettingtozerobook.com or relationshipschool.com is another way to find me and Instagram and podcasts and all that stuff. Amazing. Well, everybody, let's go out and get that. So we can, we need, we need this now more than ever because there is, I think, our threshold for um, just dealing with conflict is not that great. It's already pretty low. And I think, I know more than anything, we grow ourselves when we grow in our relationships and we put that um, at the top of the, especially this high stakes, I like that, high stakes relationships. So thank you so much for your time, Jason. You're awesome. Yeah, thanks, Laura. All right. And to everybody out there, you know it, I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.